good evening, Wan Shang Hao, Tashi Delay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the University of Sydney. Shishini, Chuche Che, thank you very much for coming along to this very uh, hot early autumn evening event uh, at the University of Sydney. My name is John Keane. I am Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney. I also helped to found and uh, to run the Sydney Democracy Network, which is one of the co-sponsors of this evening's event, together with the China Studies Centre and Sydney Ideas. I want to acknowledge that we meet on the lands of the Gadigal people, who have lived here for some 40,000 years, and whose land uh, it remains and shall forever remain. I wanted to thank many people who made this event uh, possible. Uh, Jeffrey Regal, who is our current director of the China Studies Center, and Shan Lu Lu. I'm not sure if Shan is here. Uh, Shan Lu Lu is here. She's uh, quite pregnant at the moment, and I think probably is uh, off in a better place than here in the lecture theater, uh, which is not so comfortable. Lindy Baker is here from uh, SDN, and uh, uh, Janice, uh, Zhang Janice, we call her Genius Janice, uh, also helped make this evening possible. And I also wanted to thank Meredith Hall, uh, who is here, I know, uh, who is the, um, the director, the uh, moving spirit of Sydney Ideas. Thank you to all of you for making this event uh, possible. Tonight, we are recording uh, the event. Uh, there will be a roving mic for questions. I ask that there be no filming of uh, this uh, event in this venue for pretty obvious reasons. If you want to tweet, um, please start right now and carry on uh, until your heart uh, gets tired of it. Uh, the subject, as you know, as advertised, is China, Tibet, and the colonial question. We're very lucky tonight to have help us think through this subject, Dibyesh Anand. He's our uh, guest from London. He is uh, associate professor, reader in international relations. He's uh, also head of the Department of Politics and International Relations uh, at Westminster University. And he's also the director of the Center for the Study of Democracy, in which I had a hand at an early point, which is the oldest um, research institute on the subject of democracy. It was the first ever formed in the world in the early spring of 1989 and is still going strong. Dibyesh Anand's research focuses on a wide range of topics with a special interest on the emergence of China and India as major non-Western powers. He's especially interested in China's foreign policy, its public diplomacy and its relationship with Tibet and India and other countries in the Himalayan region, particularly Bhutan and Kashmir. Dibyesh Anand is the author of several important books. Um, one of them is called Hindu Nationalism in India and the Politics of Fear. It was published in 2011, and I would say it was prescient, and it is today highly timely. His first book was a book called Geopolitical Exotica, Tibet in the Western Imagination, published in 2007. If you read this book, and some of you will have done this, 
you will know that it lays down his distinctive style. He's worldly, he's wonderfully creative, he's highly intelligent, he's a post-colonial scholar, he's no particular lover of disciplinary boundaries, he's an anthropologist, an ethnographer, a political scientist, he's an historian, and a few other disciplines. He is uh, someone who's aware, very deeply aware, of the dirty complexities of politics. He's someone who travels, who has been a number of times to Tibet, who draws on novels and popular films and travelogues and memoirs to drive home his point that nothing lasts forever. He's no fan of what he calls exoticism, exoticizing places with their snow-capped mountains and their yaks and so on. He doubts that Chinese have always been essentially Chinese and forever will remain so. And he also doubts that Tibetans are and always were essentially Tibetan and will forever remain so. Dibyesh Anand is a fine writer with a sharp eye for irony. He has a great sense of humor the more you get to know him. He's strongly aware of unintended consequences in matters of politics and life. He's an honest scholar who's interested in how to resolve intractable political conflicts among peoples who hate each other. He's for a long time been interested in those conflict zones. He's also someone who likes to stir up trouble himself to unsettle common sense views, who dares, for instance, to point out that Western societies and governments, the British Empire in Tibet is an example, are today still deeply implicated in global problems they had a strong hand in making once upon a time. Dibyesh Anand was surely born lucky. In Hindi, he tells me that Anand means happiness and bliss. That's not a bad name to have. And I can reveal tonight he's an avid Facebook, Facebooker and that his WhatsApp status message, as I found out today, says embrace freedom. In a recent speech in the House of Commons, which you can see online on the subject of troubles in Kashmir, Dibyesh Anand said the following... I speak not as a citizen of any country or any organization. I am a scholar interested in human rights, democracy, and politics. Therefore, my views privilege people over territory and states. That's my political ideology, if you may. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the eve of the 57th anniversary of the Tibetan uprising, which took place, as you know, on March the 10th. 1959. Please join me in warmly welcoming to the University Dibyesh Anand. Thank you very much, John, for actually in fact, I was not expecting this kind of warm and detailed introduction. I was feeling very humble, but also very happy about it, because at least someone bothered to check for what I was speaking at the House of Parliament in the UK. Where, and, and I want to emphasize that, because whenever I talk about, for instance, uh, Tibet or China or India or Kashmir, often, not only myself, but scholars are reduced to our own identities. So we're reduced to the identity, so are you a Tibetan? Are you Indian? Are you Chinese? Are you British? And those kind of things. And for me, the challenge with that is we may share those identities, but we may not necessarily be trapped by those identities. And what it means to be, let's say, Indian or Chinese or Tibetan is also uh, somehow connected. Good. It's not the music I have played, have I? 
No, that's fine. I'll, I'll move. That's fine. But you can hear me clearly, right? Okay. Now, the only thing I'll pick up, pick out from what uh, John was saying, and I, before I forget, of course, I wanted to thank China Study Center and Sydney Democracy Network for both of them for inviting me here. And I'll, by the end of my talk, you'll get a sense of why I'm extra thankful to them for doing it, because it partly reflects my gratitude, reflects the anxiety I have of changing dynamics of academia in the West when it comes to dealing with difficult issues related to China or, for that matter, India. Increasingly, discussions and research and talks and ideas that are discussed in Western universities, I'm more talking of UK, but also I guess it's in Australia, you find that the space is shrinking. So we are meant to talk of the rising China, rising India, economic power, but we are not meant to challenge them as nation-states. Now, as a post-colonial scholar, I believe in post-coloniality, but post-coloniality implies partly a very difficult relation with coloniality and challenging it. The amusing or disturbing thing is that post-colonial scholarship itself obsesses about West-non-West relation, the dynamic of relation between West and non-West, but it does not look at colonial relation within non-West. And today I'm going to talk about one specific topic, which is China and Tibet and how to understand the relation. And I'm arguing that the best way and the only way to understand China-Tibet relationship is in terms of colonization of Tibet by China. Now, whether one believes Tibet was occupied or Tibet was liberated, I mean, that's for us to believe in our own ways. But I would argue that either we accept liberation, occupation, but in both senses, it is colonization. Now, today, I assume most of us accept that when we talk of colonization, colonialism, imperialism, it's associated, not for very right-wing people, but generally it's associated with something negative, something bad had happened. And I would be arguing that colonialism and imperialism in some form, so colonialism is the word I'd be using, is continuing in different ways. It's not only continuing in the ways in which, let's say, US deals with the rest of the world, but more crucially, it's continuing in the ways in which India deals with Kashmiris, it's continuing the ways in which Turkey deals with Kurdish people. It's continuing the ways in which Pakistan deals with Balochistan. And it's continuing the ways in which China deals with Uyghurs or Tibetans. And my focus will be on Tibetans here. Now, generally when we talk of colonization and colonialism in China, and I was trying to Google out books on colonialism in China, and all of them emphasized upon, of course, the century of humiliation that China witnessed and experienced. So if you look at the modern Chinese nationalism, it emphasizes about a century of humiliation, where China was a great civilization for many centuries, then it declined because of internal dissension and external trouble, and there was a basic century and a half, but century of humiliation, that was colonization, and then of course People's Republic of China gets formed, and the country is resolutely anti-colonial, anti-imperialist. So China is presented as an anti-colonial state, and Chinese nationalism is presented as anti-colonial. Fine. And the notion, of course, then is that the Chinese state today, the Chinese sovereign state, so the state that claims sovereignty over the entire territory, Chinese sovereign state is an anti-colonial state. So the only discussion about Chinese colon sorry, colonization in China is in terms of China being anti-colonial. Now, this is what the Chinese nationalism claims. The reality is all nationalisms are somewhat similar. They would claim themselves to be very ancient, always benign, never violent, or only violent when they have to fight 
again others. But the disturbing thing is that even scholarship on China and scholarship on Chinese nationalism, not only by the Chinese, for instance, but by everyone else, they tend to avoid the colonial question or they tend to reduce or see colonial question only in terms of what China experienced in the past. Now, when I was, again, if you try to look at what is colonization, colonialism, most of the definition, even, for instance, the one I looked at most recently was Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy. They looked at colonialism as something that happened in the past. So it says clearly here, for instance, that it's about European political domination. So it emphasizes the European part. For me, the interesting question is, are Europeans only people capable of being colonizers? Why take away the agency of the non-Western power, non-European powers, to be equally brutal, equally obnoxious, and equally violent in occupying other countries? So for me, this kind of narrow definition of colonization in terms of only European political domination is not being self-reflective and being very liberal about how we were bad. It's also somehow that only we are capable of being bad. And how can the Indians or the Chinese or Turks be ever as bad as we are? Now, what is colonialism? And the definition of colonialism, if you, okay, there, there's hardly any academic or scholarly literature on meaning of colonialism. But when you look at colonization and colonialism, you find basically it's about asymmetric relation of power. So, for instance, if I'm colonizing you, we have a relation of power, relationship. It's a relation of power where I'm the, the one who always have the upper hand. So I decide for you what's good for you. And I decide for myself what's good for myself. So there's an asymmetry of power relation. That's a basic at the heart of uh, any kind of co uh, colonial relation. It is about alien territorial control. It is about occupying territory. It's about, it's about alienating people also, or at least control with other bodies. So when I, let's say, colonize you, it's not only that I rule you, but ruling also means I occupy your bodies. I occupy your body politic. I occupy your history. I rewrite your history. I erase your history, let's say, the ways in which Europeans did in Africa. So a dark continent, dark was never a chromatist term. Dark was about an uncivilized, barbaric place that required the white man to civilize it. Right? So it's about very much erasure of history. It's about treating people as someone who, can, who are not capable of governing themselves. The whole idea of white man's burden, you remember, is about not having the capacity to govern themselves, and therefore we need to govern you. So it's about asymmetric relation of power. It is about alien territorial control. It's about control over pe people and population. Yes, some forms of colonization, let's say in, uh, in Australia, for instance, or North America, led to large-scale genocide or large-scale killing of people where most of the native people were killed. Let's say in case of North America. But in other cases, they survived, either small pockets or larger pockets. But the reality is, it is about the sense that the people who are being occupied feel that there's an alien control. Now, when British were occupying India, the British did not see themselves as any negative. They saw themselves as a benign power. They didn't see them as a negative power. In fact, if you look at Queen Victoria's uh, declaration in 1858, when the crown took control over the Indian colony, she talked about self-governance and some, everything very, very positive, very nice, and almost hunky-dory kind of thing. But that is the reality of colonization. Colonization was never simply about brute territorial control or control over population. It was also about representing that territorial and control over people as benign in very paternalistic term. 
the colonization is always about paternalism as much it's about violence it is about knowledge production there can be no colonization without producing knowledge about the colonized and i said the reality is if you ask the colonizer often they would not see themselves as a colonizer they would see themselves as civilizing good people you know that kind of thing but when you look at the narratives of the colonized that's when you realize and if you privilege the narrative of the colonized narrative of those who suffer from the rule you see that colonization has a different meaning so in a sense knowledge production takes place it's about economic exploitation it is about cultural subservience it's about racialization ethnicization so seeing the other as different distinct and again not capable of governing themselves it's about social transformation militarization and violence i brought militarization violence towards the end because i assume that's taken for granted that colonization would have militarization and violence but i wanted to highlight other aspects also including knowledge production because that is where we start seeing and this you'll see why i'm highlighting it right now the question of china and i say use the word china stibet here right because this is a term that's often used in foreign policy and foreign propaganda of china today china china stibet so this china tibetology research center in beijing this china tibetan festival this china tibet tibetan medicine this china tibetan uh, culture cultural uh, troops so there's always china tibet china tibet it's almost i mean uh, i i almost used to laugh at it now i'm amused and also get disturbed the way in which there's an obsessive compulsion there's there's an there's an obsession to keep tibet as part of china by always declaring china's tibet i'll give in a, uh, my own example i was giving a talk on china's public diplomacy in tibet in that china tibetology research center in 2010 uh, the topic that was china's public diplomacy in and tibet so how does china try to convince outsiders that its position in tibet is legitimate um they did not like the title so she the, the, i was suggested that could you change the title so it became china's public diplomacy and china's tibet which becomes a bit awkward but i said fine just go with it so long as i am speaking what i am speaking now of course the slides i had the title i had not changed it so the person irresponsible or not she was not responsible the person who had invited me or who was hosting me she came on the stage everyone was there she came and changed on my computer which is connected said china's tibet now i let it be because part of my research is on china's public diplomacy and this helps me is part of ethnography so now i can use it and narrate it to you also but that obsession with china's tibet now for me there is a very simple question who decides whether china is liberating tibetans or china is occupying tibetans or china is colonizing tibetans see when we talk of occupation it's connected to colonization colonization is that negative experiential self where you are being discriminated my argument is that it is not the colonizers but the colonized whose experience we have to privilege so we cannot take the narrative of the colonizer as equal to narrative of the colonized the way in which a different example in case of domestic abuse we can't take the narrative of the abuser and the narrative of the abused at equal face value because when there's a huge asymmetry of power it's very important to privilege or at least acknowledge the asymmetry of power and privilege the voice of the oppressed so in this context for me it's very simple we have to not only look at what china is claiming but what tibetans have been experiencing and also giving narratives about so when we look at china's relation with tibet it is an asymmetric relation of power 1992 the first white paper by china on tibet it was called tibet its ownership and human rights situation its ownership 
I'll not explain that to you. But you can imagine the word, what it might mean. Now, you could say it's a mistranslation, but at least that's the official translation by the Chinese government itself, ownership, because that reflects the obsession China has about Tibet being an integral part of the country and China owning Tibet. Now, of course, part of that ownership and asymmetric power always is, you know, since 2009, China also celebrates, Tibetans celebrate, because that's the idea, Tibetans celebrate, serves Emancipation Day in Tibet. Since 19, uh, sorry, since 2009. The interesting part is it celebrates the what's happening tomorrow onwards, but tomorrow was, let's say, the anniversary of the Tibetan uprising when Dalai Lama also flees to India. And after that, the 17-point agreement, the agreement between Dalai Lama's government and Chinese government on what relation they'll have, was scrapped, and that's called the beginning of democratic reforms in Tibet. So that is what is, in a sense, the second phase of liberation of Tibet. So removal of traditional government, removal of traditional Tibetan state, and now democratic reforms. In that context, it's recognized that most people don't remember what it was, and therefore we need to celebrate serves Emancipation Day so that people remember it. I don't, I'm not aware of, please correct me if I'm wrong, if Chinese government is celebrating liberation of any, remember, Communist Party argued about liberation of China from everyone. But I'm not aware of Communist Party celebrating liberation as liberation in any other part the way it celebrates in Tibet. Serfs Emancipation Day. Now, who's invited to Serfs Emancipation Day? Of course, the ex-Serfs. But the key Tibetan personalities who are invited to Serfs Emancipation Day are all senior lamas and old aristocrats. A contradiction, and that's one of the many contradictions in the Chinese uh, narrative, where they will argue that we removed old Tibet, which was feudal, and we emancipated Serfs. Except the new power holders and the power holders they're building up in Tibet, if they happen to be Tibetan, most of them come from old aristocratic families or are themselves uh, reincarnate lamas recognized by China. So that's the contradiction, but that's there. So that asymmetry of power essentially implies that there's a particular... Sorry, and that, let me, it also includes territorial control. That's very clear, right? So colonization in this context would include where China controls all territory of Tibet. And therefore, dispute over Tawang, and that's something I discussed two days ago. Most of you were not there, so I'll just repeat. There's a part of, part of uh, what's considered to be Arunachal Pradesh in India and South Tibet in, by China was under direct and indirect control of Tibet in the past. That's what it was. And China claims it on the ground that Tibetans claimed it. So Chinese control claim is based on Tibetan claim. But the notion, therefore, is that whatever is Tibetan belongs to China. Who decides whether Tibetans want to be part of China or not is not for Tibetans to decide. It is the Communist Party that decides for Tibetans that they wanted liberation and they have been liberated. Because the reality is in 1951, when Tibet was liberated, so-called liberated and occupied, there was hardly any Tibetan who was part of Communist Party. There was hardly any Tibetan who was part of PLA. And that was the liberation we are talking about. Right? So there's territorial control, obviously. But there's also strong political control apart from territorial control. Political control in terms of TAR, Tibet Autonomous Region. Essentially what, let's say, Xinjiang Autonomous Region, Tibet Autonomous Region. You may think they have autonomy. Autonomy essentially implies they have less power and less capacity and less freedom to do what they want than provinces of China. Because in this context, what happens is the top leader would be in the government, in like in Tier, the top leader would be a Tibetan person, would always be grateful and thankful to the Chinese government. And the narrative of 
Tibetans in China is that they have to be forever grateful to first the Chinese government, Beijing, and they also have to be thankful to the Chinese people for all the kind of generous help they provided Tibet for development. But gratitude is the, at the heart of that asymmetric relation of power. What does gratitude remind? And if you do something for me, I may be grateful to you. But if it's a consistent pattern, because you have position of authority and I don't, and I'm always grateful to you, that also implies a certain kind of paternalist relation from your perspective. So gratitude of Tibetans forever and all the time also points out towards the paternalistic nature of the Chinese rule in Tibet. And I said paternalism is part of colonization. So this is from recent in 2016 now. Of course, Tibetan delegates in NPC, National People's Congress, and uh, wherever they get a, a representation, they always wear traditional Tibetan clothes. Now, Han Chinese can wear whatever they want. But minorities have to wear the minority dress. Because otherwise, how would Chinese government show that we are a country of one big nationality and 55 other nationalities? Now, I'm saying this is part sarcasm because, again, allowing culture to survive, but in a sense, by domesticating it and depoliticizing it, is part and parcel of any kind of colonization. When we take example of in, the British in India, for instance, you see that British did not, but they destroyed parts of culture, but they also encouraged conservative aspects of culture. In fact, the British said that we don't want to transform culture because some aspects of it are helpful. So we are here to preserve the culture. When Napoleon invaded Egypt, his statement was about liberating Egypt from the tyranny of Ottomans and presenting himself as the liberator. It's a very paternalistic, but something similar. Now, this image is what I had taken one on the left uh, from a model village in Tibet. What it shows is, of course, the Chinese party leaders and them being in the shrines. So communist leaders become the godlike figures. Now, Dalai Lama's picture can't be there, by the way, because, you know, though he's a godlike figure, he's a separatist. But the Chinese Communist Party leaders, who, by their own, I guess, admission and you know, by their own philosophy, should be atheists, are venerated like gods. And these kind of venerations are not only encouraged, but also highlighted in model villages. If you go to model village in Tibet, you'll find, of course, never a picture of Dalai Lama, but you'll always find a picture of the Chinese leaders. Xi Jinping is there also, by the way, now. He's there. So you'll find all the Chinese top leaders always there so in shrines, not in drawing rooms, not in bedroom, thankfully, but in shrines. But who knows, maybe the, even the fantasy is something the Chinese Communist Party might want to control, you never know. Um, now, so I said, in terms of TAR, in terms of governance, it's there and we can expand that if you want. And it's about gratitude and I've looked at that in great detail, again we can discuss that later. But colonization in case of uh, China in Tibet is about colonization of bodies. Now, of course, I could have shown you pictures of torture or tortured victims. I could have shown you most of the pictures which don't exist because most of the human rights abuses in Tibet, Tibet cannot be documented. That's the reality. It cannot be documented because it will not be allowed to be documented. So, for instance, if you ask me, can you show me a picture of 100 Tibetans in Drapchi prison in near Lhasa who have been tortured and what kind of torture exists? I can't show you those pictures. I could show you a couple of pictures of those who have survived, who were torture victims, survived and came to exile and shown the signs on their bodies. That I could show, not the actual torture. So you could say, but why not? How do we believe? That's the reality. How can you believe me or anyone else, human rights organizations like Amnesty, Human Rights Watch and everyone else, how can you believe them? The reality is, you can't. You can't 100% believe them. But the question should be asked from the Chinese government, that if you do not allow access 
to human rights organizations, forget Western human rights organization and international human rights organization. But if you cannot allow access to Chinese human rights organizations to prisons in Tibet, then how can one believe in whatever statistics you are giving, which is that China, China, so Tibet is the land of milk and honey and everything else? So for me, the question of statistics is always a problematic one, and in a, coloni- in a colonial context, it is a question that should be asked not of the colonized, but should be asked of the colonizer. There's control over bodies. Of course, the most stark image, which is coming out more recently, is of the self-immolations. You may have heard of it, I assume, all of you. Again, self-immolation is presented as extremism. It's presented as being encouraged by Dalai Lama. Now, again, another contradiction. If you speak to Chinese officials and Chinese nationalists in China, I'm talking nationalists in the party uh, nationalists, they will argue that uh, Dalai Lama is one of the many leaders. He's not important. He's left. No one thinks about him. And we have done a lot of changes in Tibet. The new Tibet is, again, a very good place, and he's not important. Or at most, they'll say he's one of the many leaders. But anything goes wrong, 4,000 kilometers away from border with India, right? And the blame is on Dalai Lama. So if you look at even Xinhua, you look at People's Daily and all other newspapers, anything to do with Tibet, two-thirds would be, again, how the Tibetans are grateful for whatever they're getting, and one-third is about Dalai Lama is lying, Dalai Lama is a liar, Dalai Lama is a liar. So either Dalai Lama is very important and all-powerful who can influence everyone to commit self-immolation, or Dalai Lama is not important. But the problem with the Chinese colonial kind of nationalism, not anti, it's a colonial kind of nationalism, is that it wants to represent Tibetans as unimportant, but also the most important figure when it, it has to demonize him. And of course, the second image is from Lhasa itself. Again, police now carrying fire extinguisher, because of course, there's always a risk of self-immolation. And it's covered as extremism. And um, I'll talk of one leader who I'll mention later also, people like Zhu Weichun, a very senior Communist Party leader who was responsible for negotiation with Tibet, which implied no negotiation in practice who argues that Dalai Lama, and they have argued that a few times, Dalai Lama is like ISIS, Dalai Lama is like Saddam Hussein, and Dalai Lama is like everyone else, in terms of everyone who could be potentially negative because he's an extremist. Now, from what I have read so far, when you look at this testimony provided by those who have self-immolated, none of them have asked for destruction of China. None of them asked for destruction of Chinese people. None of them have used Buddhism and say, I'm doing it because some sacred figure has asked me to do it. All of them have mentioned return of the Dalai Lama. Some have mentioned freedom from China independence. Some may have not mentioned it, but freedom they have mentioned. And all of them have mentioned unity of all Tibetans. No evidence of them being influenced by any extremist strand of religion. Now, not only control over bodies, living bodies and dead bodies, but it's also control over manifestations of bodies. You know, Dalai Lama, like Panchen Lama and other reincarnate lamas, there's a concept of reincarnation. It's a very important concept that's central to Tibetan Buddhism. And you have got a Chinese government through Order Number 5 in 2007, but also before that. But Order Number 5 from 2007 made it very clear that there can be no reincarnation without the permission of the Chinese government. Now, then it also says, in some context, local governments can prevent reincarnation. So, living Buddha, so the, the term living Buddha cannot be found in that region if the local government decides that it cannot be found. Now, so the reason I mentioned it is because it is even it's absurd. It's absurd because you have an atheist government claiming the 
supernatural authority to recognize matters of manifestation and emanation. It's not really soul, it's manifestation and you know, emanation. So the idea is if my body is gone and I manifest into another body in the form of another boy, maybe after eight years, that's the kind of reincarnation, that the Chinese government reserves the authority to change my mind from now until I get take reincarnated in the form of a boy. So in this state of in-between, in-between the death and the new life, no one has the control except the Chinese government. And when I say Chinese government, it's the Communist Party, essentially. Right? Now, we had a situation, of course, of that is the gentleman there on the right. Uh, he is, uh, if you type for Panchen Lama, Panchen Lama is the second highest spiritual religious leader in um, Tibetan Buddhism. He's the one recognized by the Chinese government. You'll find him more and more again here. I mean, not here in Australia so far, but you never know. Uh, with the way in which things are changing in Australia, you may find him visiting here soon. But possibly the first country he may visit would be Singapore. And I'll, I can explain that in question and answer why I think that. But he's someone being propped up by the Chinese government. And this young boy who was kidnapped, abducted by the Chinese government in 1995 was the candidate recognized by Dalai Lama as the reincarnation of 10th Panchen Lama. So there are two Panchen Lamas now in one sense. One is the one recognized by most Tibetans and Dalai Lama who's disappeared since 1995. And the other gentleman is the one recognized after that by the Chinese government and propped up everywhere and being moved around to show that he represents Tibetan Buddhism. So in a sense, this is important because it goes to the question of who, what happens after 14 Dalai Lama. 14 Dalai Lama is the one we have now. Now, Dalai Lama has made it very clear, and I give it from his website, 2011, that, and it's not... It should not even be contested. The idea of manifestation is that it is, if, let's say, if I'm the one who's manifesting, right? if I'm the one taking rebirth and reincarnation, I decide, I shape, it is me who takes rebirth. You can't decide for me. Right? So he's very clear that, and he has given that again and again. He might have disagreed, he might have said, given differently that he could take a reincarnation as a woman, never take a reincarnation, stop it, all those things he has said. But one thing has been consistent for the last 20 years is that he will not reincarnate in Tibet while the, neg while the matter is still unresolved. Right? So he will not take reincarnation. That's very clear. So the question then to ask is, what capacity or authority would the Communist Party have to transform him when he passes away? But the Panchen Lama episode is a good reminder of what may possibly happen. Again, we can discuss that in question and answer. But what you find is the Chinese colonization is not only about colonizing the present bodies, colonizing the deaths, who lives, who doesn't live, who lives for how long, but also about what happens to the matters of reincarnation, manifestation, and emanations. Now, only thing I would like to remind you again is there's one argument which Chinese government gives is that the traditional Tibet was this TAR, Tibet Autonomous Region, then the other regions of Tibetan, Tibetan population. So Dalai Lama, when negotiating, asks for autonomy within the entire Tibetan region, Tibet. The Chinese government argues that that's not reality because you've got TAR, which is traditionally politically Tibet, and the other ethnic cultural Tibet. The, the second map on the right there is one of self-immolations. If you notice, most self-immolations have taken place not in TAR, but outside TAR. They've taken place in Tibetan areas that have highest and most intense interaction with the Chinese. So for those who may think that, but Tibet should be largely about Tibet autonomous region and not really Tibet regions that are part of China for long, 
I'll just remind you of this reality that most protests have taken place there. Now, part of the reality is also because uh, protests in TR is much more difficult. But this has to be kept in mind. Yeah. So producing knowledge in terms of uh, from this from Lhasa, Tibet past and present, and this is an exhibition, by the way, which also organized at my university. I held an, an event uh, sponsored by the Chinese government on Tibet past and present. It was a very interesting exhibition, to say the very least. But in all of that, again, the notion is Tibet has always been part of China. Always. But the interesting thing there, and of course those are images from, again, I got from Tibet, of uh, Tibetans being exoticized, eroticized, and also being always grateful to the Chinese. Now, in that context, what happens is there's a rewriting of history, and that's part of colonization. You erase old history. You say that people are not capable of their own history, and therefore we, are need, we need to rewrite the history. In this context, what happens, and I'll give you an example of Princess Wencheng and Songsen Gampo, a Tibetan uh, king. Now, Songsen Gampo was, had more than one wife, but two important wives. One was Nepalese, who he married first, and second, Chinese, who he had married later. And both Nepalese and, uh, and Chinese princesses are, as sort of, are sort of uh, made responsible for bringing Buddhism into Tibet. So he converted into Buddhism because of influence of two princesses. Now that's a, let's say, reality. Now in Chinese narrative, or Chinese state narrative, or Chinese colonial nationalist narrative, the Nepalese princesses disappeared. The fact that it was the deity that she brought that was more important is completely ignored. And all the emphasis on is on Princess Wencheng, a nice, very docile, I guess, a Han Chinese woman who comes to Tibet and civilizes barbarians through Buddhism. And recently, again, I think after 2008, after 2008, propaganda has increased much more. What, after 2008, you had an opera of Princess Wencheng. In all of it, it's no longer of equal. It's about being civilized. Now, in that narrative, you always have an emphasis on old Tibet versus new Tibet. So the old Tibet is before 1951, and new Tibet is after. Uh, old Tibet. Now, the challenge that the Chinese narrative faces is that they have to show at every phase that Tibet became part of China. So you can't read it. I will not even read it for you. But reality, so they, they, what they would write is in seventh century. The Tibetans and the Han Chinese, and Chinese from mainland. So as if Tibet is not a non-mainland, but China. Uh, Tibetans and mainland Chinese came together. In 13th century, the bond came closer together. In 1791, they, again, they came more closer together. So I looked at six, seven words that they used, and they kept saying that every time, Tibetans accepted practically sovereignty of China. But every time, the emphasis is on how they came closer. So it's like a series of perpetual closing uh, coming together. Right? So old Tibet somehow shows Tibet has always been part of China. Fair and good. I mean, it's a good narrative, or at least it's consistent. Then the challenge they face is that old Tibet is also seen as a feudal Tibet, a theocratic Tibet, where everything was bad. Everything was bad, including torture of the serfs. This is from Zol. Uh, it used to be a prison in the past. It's, an, it's a museum now near Potala Palace in Lhasa. And when you go enter into the uh, museum, what you find is, even including very graphic uh, sound of whiplashes. Now, it's not, a SM, it's not an SNM kind of place. So it's not about pleasure. It's largely about pain in terms of serfs being beaten up by the Chinese. Sorry, not Chinese. Uh, serfs being beaten up by Tibetan overlords. It's about feudalism. So the entire museum is 
trying to highlight how old Tibet was oppressive, feudal, and it is the Chinese government, that uh, Chinese state that liberated them from it. The question for me always then is, and the new Tibet that emerged after 1951, and of course 1959 in particular, again is a place where everything is good, or everything will be good. The question for me, and there's another contradiction which is quite an important one, is if Tibet was always part of China, which is what the narrative is, then everything wrong in Tibet should also be responsibility of China. But when they talk of everything wrong in old Tibet, the responsibility is always of the Dalai Lama. And that contradiction, I think, can never be resolved by the Chinese colonization because it recognizes the nature of the colonization, that you want to take an appropriate history, but of course you want to appropriate it very selectively. So you have got those kind of old Tibet, new Tibet. You have development as a mechanism of control. Again, I'll be quite brief in all of this. Development is taking place in Tibet. A very interesting argument I was provided in 1999, quite a long time ago, when the first time I was uh, <clears throat> working on this subject, a very genial Chinese scholar told me, not told us in the audience, that, look, China has provided so much to Tibet. For instance, they were not te there was no television in Tibet in 1950s. They have televisions now. And the question for me was, were there televisions in China then in 1950s? I don't know when J.L. Baird invented television, but I'd be surprised if China or any part of Asia had television in 1950s. But, but that very casual remark but not casual because it was said at an academic conference, points out towards the wider Chinese narrative of being the harbinger of progress and development. But what I would argue is that it's part of colonial development. Take example of railways in India. The British brought railways in India not because it wanted to develop India. It brought railway in India for, the, for develop India for Indians. It brought railways to take resources out and increase their own market. So wherever railways went, famine also went. That is the reality of 19th century India. So somewhat similar, when you look at colonization of Tibet by China, we find development is used as a mechanism of control. You have infrastructure, you have got railways. Railways is, of course, in all the propaganda literature, Tibetans are always smiling and happy. But it's, when you look at the, uh, the way in which railway lines are being built, you could see there's a, whole, uh, there's a very strong concept, dual usage, which is not only for civilian, but also for military. It's for that also. Modernity is there. You have one aspect, of course, is forced settlement or involuntary settlement of nomads. A lot of Tibetan nomads have been settled into, settled in particular areas. As that's seen a sign of development. Why? They have been provided houses. At least they can be there. They have been provided motorcycles, not uh, yaks anymore or horses anymore. Now, all of that is fine. But again, the problem with that is it reminds us of, or it should remind us of, forced villagization that took place, for instance, during Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya by the British. Forced villagization that took place in Meghalaya and Nagaland in northeastern part of India, when the Indian government forced them to go stay in villages because they could not manage people who are mobile. And when we start looking at maybe your own experience here and other places, we see that an important aspect of a colonial modern state is to forcibly settle nomadic population because nomads are difficult to manage, Settled populations are easier to manage. Part of it is mining. Large-scale mining is taking place. And large-scale mining, of course, leads to environmental destruction. The question to ask again, who is mining? How do Tibetans benefit from it? Do they actually benefit from it? And whatever research comes out, it shows very clearly that there is no tangible benefit for Tibetans. And therefore, there's also large-scale protest taking place against mining. But if you protest against the government policy for building, for instance, a chemical plant 
in a Chinese city, government may not like it, but it's not going to declare you to be anti-national. It's not going to declare you to be separatist and arrest all of you. If you happen to be generally Han Chinese. But not all Han Chinese. depends upon what kind of Han Chinese you are. But in case of Tibet, any protest, even those that appeal to Beijing, and most of the protests in, are not anti-Chinese, by the way. Most protests on mining are against the uh, policies of the company or the local government and appealing to Beijing. But all those protests are crushed in the name of fighting against separatism and in the name of um, stability. You also include, and I'll finish in five minutes, you also include cultural control, and again, we can expand that cultural control, include religious control, of course, reincarnation is one aspect of it. So the Chinese government allows the freedom of worship by 1982 constitution, but freedom of worship in case of Tibet cannot including freedom to worship Dalai Lama. And I've said that in the past also, it's to, for those who cannot understand the significance of Dalai Lama for Tibetan Buddhists, for many Tibetan Buddhists, he's more than... Jesus is more than prophet in some sense because not prophet is not son of God. He is like a God. Not God because there's no concept of God, but a sacred figure. He's not a religious leader. He's not a spiritual leader. He's not a political leader. He's not only a symbol of nation, but he is the manifestation of the protector deity of Tibet. That's Avalokiteshvara. So he is the most sacred figure possible. So when the Chinese government says we allow freedom of worship, but of course we can't allow the Lama's picture, in sense it subverts its own argument that it provides uh, religious and cultural freedom. If you go, are in Lhasa or other places, I don't even need to talk about the level of militarization that's there in religious and non-religious places. Um, the large-scale destruction, and it's not only during Cultural Revolution, there are large-scale destructions. What has happened is, under the tourism sector, so the main monasteries and main temples where tourists visit, they have been, of course, redone. But even if you go into Lhasa and go into alleys, you'll find places, this is from Lhasa, this is from near uh, Potala Palace. You find monuments that remain destroyed. Because this is part and parcel of how it, it, what happened in Cultural Revolution. And there is no effort to rebuild it. Of course, there's not only control in terms of real life, real bodies, real territory, real people, but also in terms of virtual control, internet, cyberspace. Now, it's not only about censorship. Of course, you try to type Dalai Lama. You are, if you're a foreigner, your visa would be cancelled. And of course, if you're a foreigner, you may or may not know. Between 1st of February, if I'm not mistaken, so between 1st of February until 15th of April, no foreigner is allowed into Tibet. That's China's Tibet for you. Uh, but in a sense, what the Chinese have been doing in China, Tibet is they're producing a certain kind of colonial modernity that is about absolute control. Now, control does not imply they only censor information, which they do. It's also about surveillance, surveillance of all kinds. That's the picture, by the way, which I took, near Jokhang, which is the holiest place in Tibet. And you could not see a sniper of, uh, people with the, you know, the, the snipers all around, but they were all around on the roofs. Now, the reason I mention this is because most people, it's about censorship. It is about control. It's about censorship by human beings, censorship by non-human beings, by machines and non-machines. It's through cameras and non-cameras. And what the colonial modernity does in case of Tibet is it generates a paranoia amongst people and distrust. So I would not know even if you're Tibetan, I'm Tibetan, whether to trust you or not, because how would I know? I'll give you an example of two young guys who returned from India. They came into exile as a kid, then went back to China. And in fact, they went back to Kham, I think, in Yunnan. Um, so they went back. One was detained for 11 months, one was detained for 10 months. They were best friends since childhood. They never remained friends because the one who was detained for 11 months felt that 
how could the other person be detained only for 10 months? And they were detained in separate places. So he felt that maybe that person has said something about him. Now, of course, I would not know what the true story is, but the way the narratives I got is it seems that that kind of paranoia and uncertainty is generated deliberately. Because as you know, colonization functions best through divide and rule, through fear, through intimidation, through confusion, through distrust. Of course, part of colonization is demographic transformation, demographic change. Now, of course, Xinjiang is a much worse example where you look at population of Uyghurs in Xinjiang going down from almost 90% in 1940s to possibly 40 to 45% today. That's official. Unofficial, we don't even know how what the changes are. In case of Tibet, because of more international scrutiny, partly, the statistics or the population census hardly changes. So in 1990s, apparently 92% of people in Tibet were, Tibet were Tibetans. And in most recent figure that I was given by the Chinese government officials was also 92%, as if there has been no change. But for those of you who may have been to Tibet, and for those of you who the Chinese government will argue you should go to real Tibet to see real Tibet, please go and see real Tibet. Because what I would see is that, let's say, places like Lhasa and other cities, is possibly 90% non-Tibetan. When I say non-Tibetan, I don't mean Han Chinese, it could be Hui, it could be someone else, but it's non-Tibetan. Demographic transformation is taking place. Violence, of course, remains integral. Again, I didn't want to emphasize on violence part because that usually I would take for granted that you'd be aware of human rights abuses there. It's epistemic violence, violence on history, changing history. It is systemic violence, everyday violence. It's extraordinary violence. It's also with normalization of violence. I'll give you an example of one, one thing. There was a rumor north of Lhasa. There was a rumor that people could see Dalai Lama's face on the moon. The local government there prohibited people from looking at the moon. And one person was arrested for looking at the moon. That's the last story we heard of him. Now, again, it's very absurd, but we're dealing with the government that goes to an absurd extent to control and colonize people who may disagree with it. Let's say normalization violence, there's an exceptional level of violence of all kinds. And there's corporeal violence, because in the end, violence is not only over the body politic of Tibet, about history, about religion, about faith, it's also over everyday body of human beings. Right? So I said, China, in that sense, one could look at it as a modernizing state. The way I have come to my, not, it's not conclusion, but my research and my analysis is that China is, a, in a sense, is a state of colonial modernity. I gave example of Xinjiang. I said I would be talking of it. Of course, I use the word is Turkestan here because Xinjiang is a term that Chinese government uses, so you could use both terms if you want. But what we find with, let's say, places like, uh, or experience of people like Tibetans and Uyghurs, what we find is an experience of modernity that's mediated through an asymmetric relation of power that is colonial. The way in which Chinese government sells it to its own public is through nationalism. So Tibetans are part of five, you know, it's not only really Communist Party. In the past, uh, Sun Yat-sen talked about five fingers of Chinese nation. So Han, Hui, Manchu, Mongol, and Tibetans. All five. Of course, the fact that most, most probably the four other fingers were never consulted did not matter really to the nationalists. But that's what nation-states project are. It's about imposing one idea of the nation on, on everyone else. So China promotes itself as a multi-nation, well, multi-ethnic nation, right? And as you would know, if you, if you pay close attention to nationalism, nationalism is largely about blinding people to certain realities and directing them in certain directions. So this image is from a recent Xi Jinping's visit to London, which are the paper I've taken. And it's very interesting the ways in which, for instance, 
let's not even talk of censorship in China, because there you could understand why most people in China would not know what's happening in Tibet. But let's say, what about Chinese students who come to the West to study, where they get different narratives? Sometimes people would be curious. A lot of time, the reaction would be of, we are being attacked. We are being attacked because West does not like China to rise. And that nationalist knee-jerk reaction is an interesting one because to what extent it's nationalism and to what extent is the fear that if I don't go to protest or if I don't go to wave flag for Xi Jinping, my friend who's also from the same city like me may inform about me. I say this partly because in my own experience, my students who have been there, who are from China, a number of them have been quite open-minded, not necessarily agreeing with me, but open-minded enough to listen to different views. But when it came to Xi Jinping's visit, they went out with flags and they said, sorry, because we have been asked to. Now, so in terms of it's about nationalism, it's also about control. So nationalism is not only about uh, feeling, it's also about what people think it's feeling. That China's Tibet, that colonial version of China's Tibet is also being exported to outsiders. This, uh, I took this way, no human rights, just cash. That is Western policy, by the way. Forget about human rights, let's focus on cash. So what we have is, I think, Bob Carr, that image there I've used, uh, so an Australian gentleman you would know, and uh, Zhu Weichun, his name I mentioned earlier, Zhu Weichun is the uh, chief negotiator with Tibetans, getting himself pictured with it. Of course, Zhu Weichun is the one who has been most active in demonizing Dalai Lama. Now, the reason I mention this is because in the West, Western governments have largely given up on Tibet. They may mention human rights here and there, but there's no serious uh, sense of doing that. But even in academia, forget about Western government, that you can even in academia, what we have been noticing is, not always, it's contested, of course, there could be a tendency to be either Sinophobe, seeing China as rising as somewhat negative, or very Sinophile. China has a different culture. China has a different civilization. Let's not interfere. Let's not make a judgment. Who are we to say? We are Westerners. We should just keep quiet kind of thing, right? So that, but that level of Sinophilia also takes away agency of the Chinese to be the colonizer. And it makes us complicit with the human rights abuses that are taking place throughout China, particularly in Tibet. So scholarship level would be, for instance, the kind of talk I'm giving now, or the kind of talk is the I what much milder version I gave at National University of Singapore. Someone mentioned that it's such a sensitive topic, you're so courageous to talk about it. For me, it's neither sensitive nor, nor should it be courageous. As an academic, I should do research on what I want, and you can do whatever you want. That should be it. So academia should be platform for different viewpoints. The day we start censoring or the way we start self-censoring, because much of what happens, let's say, in UK context, I know more. I don't know about Australia. You can tell me more. What happens in UK context is there's a lot of self-censorship by us. We want research funding. China is an attractive market. So let's keep quiet. Oh, our students come from China. Let's keep quiet. Now, our students come from China, so let's keep quiet. And I have heard that many times, by the way. It's the most absurd and racist kind of argument, assuming that all Chinese students are alike, and we have to somehow respect that. And as if critical thinking, which should be the heart of scholarship, universities exist for critical thinking. And critical thinking is something that should be suspended when we are teaching Chinese students. For me, it's very clear that as a post-colonial scholar, my ethics is to come up with an anti-colonial way of looking at things. And if I look at anti-colonial way of looking at things, if I would, for instance, if I did research, I would be looking at Aboriginal rights and the ways in which it has been taken away in Australia or the way in which 
impact of colonization on Africa, impact of colonization in Kenya, impact of colonization in Pakistan, India. By that logic, I should also be studying and analyzing the impact of colonization by India in Kashmir or China and Tibet. So that is what postcon scholarship should be about. So I would urge that when we study China, we should not blind ourselves in one direction or the other, but look at it more comprehensively. And that's the last slide. So in a sense, the overall argument I made, I think it should be clear, is that the, in terms of China and Tibet, the answer is decolonization. Decolonization, whether is essentially about not breaking up China. It's not about break up of China in terms of breaking it and separatism. Decolonization is about changing the nature of relation between Tibetans and Chinese in this context. Uyghurs also you can talk, but we can, uh, that's not what I'm talking about now. T Tibetans and China. For instance, Dalai Lama has offered middle way, which is genuine autonomy within PRC. That, in a sense, is keeping the structure alive without, while removing the colonial aspect of it. Of course, those who argue for independence from China would argue that you can never have genuine autonomy within PRC. But that's a division. For me, it is in the end, that's the right to self-determination, it's in the end, Tibetans, all Tibetans, who must be given the chance to decide whether they want to be part of PRC, they want to be independent, they want to remain part of PRC in middle way like Dalai Lama asked, or they want to be part of PRC the way what's happening now, which is under the Chinese government, under Chinese government, fully part of Communist Party. In a sense, that for me is a basic right of decolonization, basic right of people, which is the right to self-determination. And as scholars, I do believe that we should focus also on the right to self-determination of people occupied by the non-Western powers, along with people occupied by Western powers. Thank you very much.